Good morning, good morning. Happy Fourth of July. Woohoo! Living in America. Um, it's good living in America. I lived in another country. It's nice living in America. Um, a lot of great things here. And uh, yeah, it is really good. It's, it's worth celebrating for sure what we have. And um, I'm thankful to be in America. I'm also thankful to be in church and able to share the Word of God and, and uh, learn from the Word of God with you today. Uh, it's funny how these things happen. We're, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're kind of coming to the end of this little mini-series within the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives six examples of the greater righteousness that he wants us all to live into. And uh, he talks about anger and lust and divorce and kind of like keeping your promises, but bearing false witness, and a little bit of like how to love each other and, and, and not respond in resentment, but you know, deal with people correctly. And, uh, and then today, our sermon is on loving your enemies. Um, and it's the 4th of July, and America is the way it is. <laughs> I was like, oh, yay, yay. So on one hand, we're super clever to figure out how to be so strategic in the way we're planning these things. That didn't happen. Um, this is all by default, and if we knew this was coming, we probably wouldn't have even planned it this way. But with all that being said, I'm going to sit down for this message <laughs> so that what I say is, feels a little less offensive, maybe. Um, in first service, they gave me a little chair. I was literally sitting in a stool, like, way down here for, like, the whole intro, and it just, I could not get over how awkward it felt. Finally, I said something, then Nick Orso ran up and got me a big boy chair, so... I'm feeling a little bit better. But maybe I needed to start so low and be so unoffensive and even look like a little kid because first service, they got problems, you know? Um, maybe. Um, but yeah, and Jesus actually was sitting down when he, shared, when he preached this message. Um, he was sitting on a hillside with his people. He was calling to him saying, hey, come follow me. And if you follow me, let me tell you what it's gonna be like. And, uh, and he was sharing with them. So it was real encouraging kind of Jesus saying, stick with me and this is what's gonna happen. And today he does talk about loving your enemies. Um, and I just need to start out asking if you can feel the tension. Can you feel the tension in America? Can you feel the tension in church in America? Can you feel the tension in your own families, maybe even in your own soul? And if you can't, how about this? Mask or no mask? I just threw my pen for some weird reason. Oh yeah, thank you very much. I, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's helping me out today. Um, vaccine or no vaccine, conservative or liberal, woke or not woke, racist or anti-racist, affirming or not affirming, love is love or homosexuality is a sin. Now can you feel the tension? Um, in case you didn't, maybe you feel a little more tension. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if none of that has really stirred up the tension, then what if I say the name Patrick Beverly? <laughs> Teaching on love our enemies? Gotta say Patrick Beverly. For those of you who don't know Patrick Beverly, he plays for the Los Angeles Clippers and was enemy number one for the Phoenix Suns basketball team. His def I literally wrote this out. <laughs> His defense and cheap shots and trash talk and flagrant fouls will not be quickly forgotten by any Suns fan. However, there's great consolation for all of us because we won. And I do mean we. 
because I was very strategic about what I would say when I was watching their games as if not to jinx them in any way possible. Um, I was even, I actually have, I'm going, I'm going out of limb here. I have Kawhi Leonard shoes. But he was injured, and so when I played basketball last time, I decided it was okay to wear them because he was injured. If he was not injured, I would not have worn him, them. I would have found some other shoes to wear. Okay, nobody's with me anymore. <laughs> um, but if we would have lost, oh, the hatred and tension would have been even more palpable. I basically think like, the sun, like Phoenix needed this win. <laughs> for us to be able to walk forward in unity. Um, we actually have a men's retreat and I'm speaking at it pretty soon. And I was like, man, if the Suns can pull off this championship, this men's retreat is gonna go so well. If they can't, we really gotta deal with a lot of unity problems, you know? Um, but in this tension, in this reality that we go through, and obviously I'm joking about all of these things um, with, with the Suns and all that. It's fun and all of that, but it has its place. and and. Uh, and Patrick Beverly, you know, I'm sure he's just doing his job, just don't like the way he's doing it and stuff like that. But, um, but anyways, there's this picture that came to my mind when I was in a worship time recently and about to speak to a group. And if you don't know, this is, this is Nebula, <laughs> and this is from um, Avengers Infinity War. And basically, this lady is being tortured by her dad because he betrayed her. It's not a real prodigal son, father story. It's much the opposite. But... Um, but this image, what it is, is basically he has this power over her and when he squeezes his hand, it like pulls her apart. Like literally, you can see like her, her, the parts of her head being pulled apart and her arm being extended. And, and I, what, I, what I felt like the Lord was saying is that so many people are walking around with this kind of tension. They feel, if they've hung in there at all, if they haven't gotten drunk every day, or found other ways to ignore or escape the pain, if they'd stayed in the relationships that are so difficult for them because of all of these medical, political, or theological differences, they feel like they are fragmented. They feel like they are fractured, literally. It's as if their heart is being pulled apart and it is not whole anymore. And it hurts. And it's been such a prolonged disruption that they're barely making it anymore. And yet that tension, that tension of being in relationships and loving in a way that costs you something is the love that Jesus is calling us into. He's calling us into that tension as priests called by his name with one hand holding onto heaven and one hand holding onto earth. There's a tension, there's a pull. We're standing in the gap in a way that does cause a lot of challenge and pain. That's why we need each other. That's why we need biblical counsel. That's why we need life groups. That's why we need mentorship. That's why we need the Spirit of God every single day to be at his feet in quiet and stillness so he can bring us back to wholeness so that we can love in the way that we're supposed to. That's a little bit of what Jesus is trying to teach us when he tells us to love our enemies. And just so we know, this isn't just happening out in society. This isn't just a Republican and Democrat situation. But this fracturing is actually happening inside the church. It's not susceptible to it. This guy um, wrote an article, and if, if you're kind of dealing with some of that world um, 
where you're having divisions theologically or within the church, and uh, you want some, some good um, information on that, this article is so good. Just email me, and I can send it to you. But it's a guy named Skylar Flowers. He's a pastor in Mississippi or something. I don't know, somewhere like that, down south. And uh, this is what he says. He says, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. That would be us. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethical, um, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Can I get an amen? Amen. Anybody feeling that tension? Um, I am, majorly. And it's into this space, it's into the space that Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven, because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the way he kind of rounds out that six examples of what the greater righteousness is. He's trying to teach us something about love, about God's love and the love that he's trying to lead us into. He's trying to teach us a little bit about his worldview and the worldview of those who are following him. And again, his disciples, when they heard this, those who had gathered, they didn't hear this and feel beat up afterwards. In Matthew 7, 28, I've said it so many times already, when they heard this, it says that they were amazed at his words. And that they were amazed because he spoke as one having authority, unlike the Pharisees. And basically what they were saying is when they heard this, they felt like this was amazing that he actually believed they could live into this. And that he was so, had so much substance to what he was saying that they could actually follow him, stay close to him, and he would get them there. That was the response that they had to these words. And again, I appeal to you, as you hear this and as it hits you, wherever you might be, please hear the tone of Jesus' voice. See, please see the look in his eyes as he's saying this to you to say, if you will stick with me, if you will take my hand, if you'll tuck your life right in here behind me and go with me, You will see this stuff show up in your life. And more importantly, the people around you who God has called you to love, they'll start to see this stuff show up in your life. And we brought testimony after testimony of people coming up here to saying, I was here, I took Jesus' hand, and it took a year, it took five years, it took 10 years, it took whatever, and now I'm here. And this stuff is showing up even to those around me saying, the Lord has shown up. And it's been fun, it's been good. And so this is the last of those, be perfect. So I wanna unpack a few of these phrases and then ultimately I wanna talk about love. A biblical view of love, the love of God, the love that Jesus is wanting to produce in our lives and have us live into. Um, for here he says, love your enemies and pray for the persecutors. 
And basically, this is that greater righteousness that he's calling us to. Not a shallow love, not a love those who love you, but, but loving those who are hard for you and difficult for you. And uh, this is only possible, remember, this greater righteousness is only possible with the blood of Jesus that he gave freely, that washes us clean of all of our unrighteousness. We have to remember every day as we fall, as we falter, and as those around us do as well, that the righteousness of God is and always will be stronger than the unrighteousness of man. That is one of the best news of the gospel. That's the whole point of the resurrection. Man's unrighteousness, we did our best to get Jesus down in that grave, but God's righteousness was greater when Jesus rose from the dead. So it's his blood that gets us there, but it's also his spirit living inside of us that empowers us to walk in this way, in this greater righteousness. And so in this aspect of loving your enemies, he says, if we love them, we will be children of our Father in heaven. I thought that was an interesting phrase. But somehow, basically, when we live into this type of love, it, it's identifying ourselves as children of our Father in heaven. Jesus alluded to this in a kind of a little, little bit of a way when he said that they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. They'll know that you're kind of with me because you'll be so good at loving one another. And here what Jesus is saying is if you love your enemies, you're actually kind of living into this aspect of being a part of the family of God. And this is challenging for us. But God loves the whole world. God loves everyone. He delights in every per person that he has created. Even the ones you hate. He loves them. He delights in them. He looks at them and he sees a bit of his own reflection. They carry that imago dei, that image of God. They were formed from the same dirt as you were, all of them. They were endowed by the breath of their creator in the same way that every single one of us was. Whether they've chosen to, to do good with that or evil doesn't change the fact that they are still a person that God made, that God loves, that God has a good plan for, that Jesus died for. And that's really hard to believe sometimes. It's really hard to receive sometimes. But then Jesus goes on and says, not only are you living into that family of God, that kind of the universal love of God, but he's saying, just, just remember that God sends his reign on the just and unjust. That God lets his sun rise on the evil and the good. That basically God every day is giving good gifts to the most evil person on the planet. By giving him life or giving her the sun or the rain. That kind of love, that kind of unconditional, benevolent love is very hard to grasp and understand. But that's who our God is. That's who Jesus is. And if we follow him, he's wanting some of that love to stir up in us. Whew, that's a challenge. 
And then he goes on to say, if you love those who love you, is the next phrase. What good is it if you love those who love you? What good is it if, if you greet? What does he say? What, is it, what good is it if you greet your own people? What an interesting way to unpack that. Love your enemies, that feels safer. That's broad. It's like, well, think of our enemies, think of Hitlers out there. That was like dubbed out when I said Hitler. We don't even say that name here, whatever. That was cool. <laughs> but anyways, anyways, like, it, it's like when you talk about enemies and like, oh, those evil people over there, like, it kind of kind of removes it. But then Jesus brings it so close to home when he says, you, what good is it if you only greet your own people? And this is where my sermon just, I was like, oh, no. Fourth of July, no, I, no. Because I started thinking about, you know, who my enemies were, and it was like, nah, I don't know if I have enemies. I mean, come on. But then if I think about the people who I would consider not my people, the people who I disagree with, and particularly medically, politically, or theologically, oh, I got some of those people. <laughs> I got some of those people. Oh, yeah, I got some of those people. Ooh, tension, tension. And that, but that's what Jesus is saying here. And I love the word greet, which is so interesting because in the Greek, the word greet basically has a little bit of a spectrum to it. Um, it could mean enfold in your arms, which is pretty serious greeting, you know? It's like French greeting or something. I don't know, in Europe, they're always kissing each other and stuff, but this is like, Greeting in that way, but then there's also another kind of other side of it where it's salute. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I love how Jesus gives us a little bit of like, okay, maybe you can only salute right now. <laughs> that's okay. When you're dealing with somebody you disagree with, that's not your people, that's kind of on the other side of the political aisle or other side of the COVID aisle or the other side of the theological aisle, maybe it's hard for you, maybe all you can muster is a salute. <laughs> he said, I'll take that. We'll work on the enfolding in your arms later. But it just got so real when you put it in that context. Because we've had a lot to divide over. And the demonization that we have begun to practice, not just as Americans, but as Christians, is super intense and I think super grievous to the Spirit of God. I was asked what my sermon title was today, and I said love your enemies because it's general and nice and all of that, but I think if I was really gonna pin it down, what I feel like the Spirit is saying is we need to stop demonizing people. That's the first step towards loving our enemies. Just because they wear a mask or don't wear a mask, doesn't mean they're a demon. And your little jokes about it or your little comments, Jesus hears them. And I think it really does grieve our Father's heart, just as if my kids are belittling each other or demonizing each other. And I get that there's deception out there. I get that there is right and wrong, good and evil, no doubt about it. 
But we gotta be careful with the way we're talking about God's family, God's kids, and dealing with them. And we need to be willing to greet even people who are not our people. And this is where that confirmation bias, you know, we just love hearing, hearing what we love to hear. And Jesus isn't us saying you gotta go and fold them in your arms all the time, but we need to at least salute them. <laughs> salute them from afar. Sometimes that's all you can do. It's like, okay, bye, that's all I got, man. It's okay. And then lastly, he says, be perfect. And the word perfect here obviously is a huge challenge to us, and I don't wanna you know, take away too much of what Jesus is saying here because Jesus does have high hopes for us. But the word in the Greek is teleos, which, which kind of leans a little bit more like complete. Be complete. Um, and even we can take that a step further and be mature. Like this is something that God is wanting us to grow into. Jesus' followers will be complete in their love for others. Whether they deserve it or not, whether they agree with you or not, whether they have done absolute evil or not, there is a reality of love that God wants us to do. And it's gonna take a lot of maturity to love in those hard places. A lot of maturity to handle that tension. Going back to basketball, whenever I think of the word maturity, I think of Michael Jordan at the free throw line at the end of a game in a, in a stadium that's not his own. And just how intense those moments are and yet his basketball maturity was a place where he could just you know, do exactly what needed to be done in that moment. And the goal for us is that Jesus wants to grow us up into people that are so similar to him, so filled with his spirit, that when we're faced with those super intense moments, what comes out of us is love, his love. And so we need to define what love is. Think of the person who has hurt you so bad or who is currently trying to ruin your life when you think about loving your enemy. And if you can't think of anyone, hallelujah, it's awesome. It's wonderful. In Jesus' day, they could think of him. It wasn't hard for them to think of him. The fragmentation happening within Judaism at that day was intense. Within the Jewish community, there was so much division and hatred for the other. Within the nations surrounding them, Samaria, which is even part of them, so much ethnic hatred and division. And all of that was just underneath this massive hatred and division of the Roman Empire, where basically the Romans were citizens and had rights as citizens. Everybody who wasn't a Roman citizen was basically just worthless. And their lives didn't matter. And so when Jesus was talking about loving your enemies, for them it was a little easier to come by, maybe than us. And I'm not trying to say you, that's true of you. You might be very easily coming up with enemies. But in that context, he's saying we need to love each other. And so now think of the person or persons who have disagreed with you. And, uh, and Jesus says we need to love them. In fact, he says that if you don't love them, you have a lesser or pharisaical counterfeit righteousness that won't help you into the, into the kingdom of heaven. He's serious about this. And so what does it mean to love um, practically? St. Thomas Aquinas, I love this. I use this all the time. I love this definition of love. <laughs> kind of weird to say, but um, to love is to will the good of the other, real simply. That's where love is a choice more than an emotion. If you haven't figured that out yet, figure it out right now. 
It's an act of our will. And emotions can follow, but emotions are not in charge of whether that decision is made. But to will the good of another, and if you look at love in that context, it becomes a little simpler. To get to a place where in my heart of hearts, as I'm considering or as I'm confronted with my enemy, that ultimately at the end of the day, my prayers, my speech, my conduct toward this person is in line with this definition of love, where I really do will the good of them. I want them to find God's plan for them and to flourish in what God has for them in my heart of hearts. There's another guy, Francis Turretins, and he kind of was trying to unpack a John Wesley and understand, or Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley, I forget which one of them, sorry. Um, I mixed myself up now. But anyways, um, this, is, this is a little bit of trying to unpack what he was saying about God's love. And what he did is he divided God's love into three different aspects. Love of complacency, love of benevolence, and love of, love of beneficence. Okay, so these are just old English words, so bear with us here. Um, but complacency, not at all what we mean before, but it actually means to delight. And, and the, kind of the, the play on that is like you're so comfortable in that person's love. Like you just, you, you're, you're, why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? It's just like you have this complacency that you settle into whenever this person is near. Again, weird, old English, whatever. But basically it means that you delight in this person. And this is what's so amazing about the love of our God. He delights in every single person. His goal, his hope is that we would have every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered before him of all their different political beliefs, of all their different, maybe even theological beliefs to some extent, all under the supremacy of Christ. I'm not saying there's multiple ways of heaven. Jesus is the only way to heaven, absolutely. But we all come to Jesus with different kind of baggage, different opinions and beliefs and theologies that need to be submitted to the greater counsel of Christ. But we all come. And God's plan is he wants it all represented. under the blood of Christ. Not just one color, not just one creed, not just one faith, not just one denomination. He wants it all. And absolutely has to come through the very narrow door that is Jesus Christ. No doubt about it. It's only his blood that gets us in. But we're gonna all get to heaven, a bunch of us, and we're... we're we're gonna get there with some great disagreement <laughs> in a lot of earthly things, a lot of non-essentials. And we, not, we might not even be sure what essentials are essential and not essential. We have different lists there too. But God delights in everyone. Like literally every morning when the, everyone wakes up on the earth, God's like, oh, I like that one. Do you see this one? You know it? I put this little weird thing right there. That little weird, I love that weird. You put it in all of us. So that's an aspect of God's love that I think is extremely difficult for us. I've seen people that are a little bit more like this in their love, and they're amazing to be around. And I've seen people who have zero of this in their love, and they're kind of fun to be around because they're hilarious how they're just talking about people and how much they don't like people. So I think they're funny too. But, um, but yeah, this is something we gotta grow in, but this one I, I feel like in some ways is not 
directly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. But love of benevolence, this is to will the good of the other unconditionally. We talked a little bit about that with Thomas Aquinas, um, that God really does have a good plan for everyone, and that's his will, that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. And then love of beneficence. This one's a little different, but this is where the delight and the will become action. This is to act kindly towards another And so this is a little bit fuller definition of a biblical perspective of love, that God is wanting to grow us up in each one of these things. Maybe you're good at one of these and you're not at the other two. Need to hang on to Jesus and see what he can do. And then we have 1 Corinthians 13 definition of love that is just so different than anything American or Valentine's Day, right? Hallmark Channel, whatever. Love is patient, love is kind. And what I think is interesting is it it rejoices in the truth at the same time. And then he finishes that all up with saying, love always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. No matter what the other does, no matter what the feeling is, And this is the way God loves us, and this is the way he wants us to love his children. And in this, it was interesting because then my mind started to go into all of these ethical dilemmas or scenarios. Should Dietrich Bonhoeffer have tried to assassinate Hitler? Did he unpack these scriptures correctly or not? It's 4th of July. We're going to pray for the military. How do we unpack these things in a nationalistic type way? Have mercy, Lord. I started going, I was like, okay, Lord, what do I, and again, I am not that brilliant. (laughs) And there have been a lot of brilliant people who've written a lot of brilliant things, and they're not quite sure what to do. And I get all of that. And I'd love to have conversations and I hope this message actually stirs some of those conversations. But what I can offer to you is what I think Jesus would say. How in the world could I have the audacity to say what Jesus would say? Well, because he told us some stories that he used to illustrate the kind of love that he longs for. Actually, one time he was asked by someone about loving and Jesus, or like what I should do. And Jesus said, we should love your neighbor. That's the greatest commandment. And he said, well, then who's my neighbor? And so Jesus answered what it means to love your neighbor in that context. But interestingly enough, when he did it, he told the story about a good Samaritan, right? So the Samaritan is the enemy of the person asking the question in multiple ways. The Samaritan represents the enemy. So basically Jesus, who's so sneaky and just kind of like, undoing people all the time. He answers the question about what it means to love your neighbor by showing this person how an enemy loved the neighbor. Uses the enemy as the example. And in this story, you have a a guy who was walking down the road and he gets beat up by thieves and robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. And then a priest comes by and has things to do, so he kind of goes to the other side of the road and carries on. Then a Levite, who basically was supposed to be a priest, He comes by, and again, he's got the same situation where it's like, oh, it's almost a holy day. I can't really get unclean if that guy's dead, so moving on. 
And then a Samaritan, the hero of the story. And you get the connotation a little bit by Jesus that this Samaritan is someone who's, who's a true Samaritan. He's been marginalized, he's been outcast, maybe hurt, abused, oppressed in some way. And yet he's walking down this road and he looks and he sees a Jew beat up on the side of the road. And he goes to him. And he tends to his wounds. And he gets him up on his donkey. And he takes him to the next town and he puts down money to make sure the guy's got a place to stay until he can heal. He gives a little extra money so the guy's got some food. And he says, I'm gonna be back to check on him in a little bit. And then Jesus said, so who loved their neighbor? And in this, Jesus was doing something extremely, extremely challenging. He probably sat down when he said it. <laughs> because this is the kind of love that he's asking us to live into. And yes, we need to will the good of the other, but then we need to be looking for those opportunities that God's gonna put in our path to actually do something about that will. And so I had to unpack this because I have some situations in my life. I have a guy who's basically said he cannot walk with me anymore because of a theological stance that I have that we're divided on. I don't think it's a salvation essential issue, but it's one that is definitely, I'm not going anywhere, and he said he can't walk with me anymore, and this is a good friend. And I have another situation where I've been kind of friends with a guy who's homosexual and I was there the first time I found out he was homosexual because I was asking him about his girlfriend and he answered weird and I was like, so you have a boyfriend? And he was like, I just broke up with my boyfriend. And so we were able to engage in that situation and kind of talk about how the struggle and the pain that he's going through and, and kind of minister in there and he knows where I stand and I know where he stands and he was genuinely kind of asking the question, can I honor God as a homosexual? And I was like, I don't think so, but... Um, I still can be in a relationship with you and still be friends and, and we can still embrace each other. And then year, years go by and he ended up getting engaged to that same person he broke up with and he's super excited about it and he's now convinced that he can honor God as a homosexual and he wants to show the world how to do it. So it's sometimes all I got is a salute right now. <laughs> you know, like, it's a little tougher, but I still want to live into the relationship as God sees fit. And so if an opportunity comes to show love or kindness, I, I want to be ready there. I don't want my heart to have gone cold. And then I've got another person who is a pastor of a church here in Phoenix, and we've been getting to know each other more and more. And uh, I... Oh, we've had some great times together. He's awesome in a million ways, loves Jesus deeply. And we finally got to the end of our last conversation and I was just asking him questions and listening and basically found out that he feels like the best way that I could really kind of support him and, and serve him and, and what the Lord's calling his church to is, is to like get super politically motivated and active and in line with what he believes is important politically. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, oh. And my heart just sunk a bit. 
when the converse, because the conversation ended because he, he doesn't know where I stand and I, I know where I stand. And we're very, very in opposition politically. But this question came up in my spirit. Can we serve each other and serve alongside each other so that Christ can be magnified in our city even though we differ politically? And I was just kind of stuck. And then I felt like this other question came up in my spirit, which maybe wasn't so much from my spirit, maybe it was from God's spirit. And it was just, is the, spirit, is the unity of the spirit more powerful than the disagreements or divisions in politics? And I didn't want to answer that question. But the answer is yes, obviously. The unity we have in the spirit has to be more powerful and stronger than any of our, any of our political divides. And then there was another question that came. If we can't do this in the church, why are we praying for this to happen in society? It's gotta start with the family of God first. It's where the awakening is always supposed to start. So we gotta live into some tension. And we gotta find a love that is not ours because ours is not gonna endure the tension. We gotta tap into a love that made the world. A love that sent his own son to die for the sins of the world. A love that is so consistent. A love like that Samaritan who's ready. And the second example of love that Jesus gives us is the story of the prodigal son. And this is that same love of God expressed where the son came to the father and said, I don't want to be your people anymore. I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. I think you're old fashioned. And I want my inheritance from you because to me it's already as if you are dead. And the father says okay and gives the son the inheritance. And the son leaves the boundaries leaves the perimeter of what the father has given him and goes out and spends the money in the way that he wants to. And we follow the story of the son a little bit, but I want to talk about the father because I've always been intrigued. What was the father doing while the son was away? And the only way we can even guess what the father was doing while the son was away is know that someday on a random day, not a day that the father knew, the son was, was walking home and the father had had seen him a long way off. So in some ways that means to me that every day I think the father went to the edge of his boundary, the edge of his property, knowing he couldn't go with his son into all the sin, but he was not gonna stay so far away, he was not gonna kinda pull to the other side, but he was gonna say, I'll go all the way to the edge and I will look with a longing, with a prayer, with a hope in my heart, with love in my heart, hoping that one day I might see you coming back home. And in this story, he did. And when the son got there and the son had the whole plan, son, I've sin or father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, the father interrupted him and said, no, 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 no. We'll get to all of that stuff. But right now, what you need to know is I love you. And I never stopped. And I never will. And you belong right here. And here's a robe and here's a ring. 
And I've been coming out here every day and I can't tell you how happy I am that you came home. And that's the heart that should be in the followers of Christ. Even to someone who basically left you for dead. We gotta be careful we don't create walls for the people that have left. The church is a place where some of that deconstruction, healthy deconstruction should happen. So people don't have to go and do it in the world. So we need people like Jesus who are willing to go and eat with tax collectors and sinners. People who are willing to go to the edge of their boundaries, into the margins with the love of God, secure in their understanding and orthodoxy, but not afraid to go into those spaces where people are really struggling and trying to figure out what's true, what's up and what's down, what's right and what's wrong. And I'm not telling you I know how to do this perfectly, but I'm trying in a few relationships to continue to live into this. And to break it all down, I think we should will the good of our enemies or those who are not our people or disagree with us. When presented with an opportunity, we should try and do good for them somehow, some way. If it can be an envelope in your arms, great. If it can just be a little salute, <laughs> hey, take what you can get. And that we should, on occasion, as the Spirit leads, we should even create opportunities. We should try and put ourselves in places that are hard and the tension is real. Not so often that it's killing us. But from time to time, maybe take somebody with you. And then I love what one of my teachers, Dan Riccio, says. He says, learning to live with extreme tensions can be decades long in a pro as a process. But also I feel like there is grace for us to take one step at a time. And he's saying this out of his own pain and out of his own experience. And so I want to just take a minute now and pray. I want to pray for our enemies. And if that word applies, go ahead and start there. But if you're not sure how to use that word enemies, you can pray for those who are not your people, those who are on the other side of you with some sort of ideology. Maybe even theologically. Now, just so you know, I'm super theological. I like, I'm big on theology. I think it's so important, I love it. That's the place where I have the hardest time dividing with people. So I'm not trying to say there aren't real essential things, but I'm saying there's a lot of things that are not essential that we make way too important. More important than Jesus does, I think. So you can pray for those people. And we'll just be still for a bit.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us just the way we are, but you also love us enough to not leave us the way we are. And what our nation needs is it needs you. The only thing really worth uniting under is your name, Jesus. And I pray that your name would really be magnified in America. And Jesus, I also want to echo your prayer for your church, for your people, that we would be one. That we would be willing to live within that tension to see you glorified. And you'd raise up prophets and pastors and preachers and leaders in the church that would really help us see how to get there. And Lord, I pray that you would really help us do our part to stop the demonizing. I thank you that you didn't demonize us, Lord, but instead you reached out gave your life for us. And we do pray that America would be great. Great in all the economy of heaven measurements, Lord. We pray that your great wisdom would fall upon our nation. that true justice would show up here, Lord. And that a great move of love would flow out of your church, Lord, to build your kingdom right here. Thank you, Lord. Amen.